Amen. If you'll take your copy of God's Word and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians. I don't need to tell you that our world is a mess, do I? Probably know that. Today I want to remind us that not only is the world a mess, but the church is a mess. Churches are messy. Why? Because they consist of messed up people who are a hot mess. That's why churches are messy. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to such a church. Uh, 1 Corinthians is written to a church that was in the middle of a church cultural war. And through each chapter of 1 Corinthians, there is mess after mess after mess that Paul is hitting head on. In fact, let me share some of these messes they were dealing with in the church. One of the messes that they were dealing with was political partisanship in the church. They were dealing with incest in the church, prostitution in the church, celibacy within marriage. Oh, good gravy, no. In the church, they were dealing with married couples, Christian married couples who were asking for divorce. Christians married to pagans asking for divorce. Paul was dealing with all kind of marriage and remarriage issues and questions and messes. and There were lawsuits, believers suing believers in the church. Idolatry was rampant in this church. Concerns about women praying and prophesying in immodest ways was in this church. There was inequality as they gathered at the Lord's table in this church. They had chaos in worship as people were speaking in other tongues. There were denials of the bodily resurrection of Jesus in the church. It was a mess. They were fussing over collecting money and sending to Jerusalem. It was a mess. The church at Corinth was the worst. I mean the worst. We can say that the church at Corinth was Paul's worst church but she was still the church why do you suppose that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 the love chapter why do you suppose that chapter is in 1 Corinthians and no 1 Corinthians 13 is not in 1 Corinthians so it can be read at your wedding 1 Corinthians 13 was not written for weddings In fact, I would argue that 1 Corinthians 13 was written more for marriages than for weddings. Yet, we hear 1 Corinthians 13 more at weddings than we see it in marriages. Let me remind you of some of this, what this text reads. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. You see, the context of 1 Corinthians 13 is that the church at Corinth, they didn't like each other. But they were called to love one another. 
You know, church, we don't always like each other. Some of us don't like SEC people. Some of us don't like ACC people. Some of us don't like masked people. Some of us don't like unmasked people. Some of us don't like vaccinated people. Some of us don't like unvaccinated people. Some of us don't like Republican people. Some of us don't like Democrat people. And I'm talking about in the church. Some of us don't like homeschool people. Some of us don't like public school people. Some of us don't like private school people. Some of us don't like Olympic people. Some of us don't like non-Olympic people. I think oftentimes we like not liking one another. But we're always called to love one another. And there's no better place that we see this displayed for us, demonstrated for us, shown to us than when we gather at the Lord's table. No better place to see that although we may not like one another, we are called to love one another. And so what what I want to do is I want to read the text, speak to you on the subject, what is learned at the Lord's table? What is it that we can learn as we come to the Lord's table? So I want to start in verse 17 and read through verse 26, but then we're just going to camp out in verse number 26, okay? But we're going to start in verse 17. So if you're there, say I'm there. Look at it with me, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. You know, Paul was in a mood when he wrote this letter, wasn't he? He just had it up to here. Look what it says. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Ouch. Verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. I can't for the life of me understand how people can say with a straight face that the Bible is not relevant for today. Is there any verse more relevant than that one? There are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, Paul says, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, would you help us today? Holy Spirit, would you help us today? Would you help us have ears to hear what you have to say to us? I thank you for the reading of your word. We pray for the response to your word. We ask that you would grant us the gift of repentance 
and that we would respond in a way that pleases you in Jesus' name and God's people said. So here we go. Here's our big idea, main idea, sermon in a sentence. Takeaway is what I call it. The Lord loves those who you don't like. The Lord loves those who I don't like. The Lord loves those who we don't like. The Lord loves those who you don't like. And again, no better place to see this than at the Lord's table. And so as we approach the Lord's table, as we camp out in verse 26, I want to point you to several clues today that help us see the truth and help us know that the Lord loves those who we don't like. So here's the first clue that should tip tip us off to the fact that, yep, the Lord loves even those that I don't like. Here's the first clue. The Lord unifies our hearts at the table. When we come to the table, our hearts are unified. Amen, church? Our taste buds are not unified. Right? <laughs> when we come to the table, Tanya says yuck to onions. I say yum to onions. Tanya says yum to mayonnaise. I say, yuck, that is absolutely disgusting, right? Our taste buds are not unified at all times when we come to the table. Some people prefer a Pepsi. I'm praying for you. (laughs) Some people prefer Coke. Some who think they're better than everybody prefer water. (laughs) All right, you're better than us, healthier than us, yada, yada, yada. Some prefer Dr. Pepper. Some, yeah, I heard a yes. Some prefer Mr. Pibb. You know, that, that's never seemed fair to me. Dr. Pepper. Mr. Pibb. <laughs> Doctor and Mr. When is Mr. Pibb going to finish his doctorate? <laughs> and he's been working on it forever, hasn't he? You know, when we come to the table, there's a lot that's not unified. Our opinions may not be unified. Our faith may not be unified. Our politics may not be unified. Our appetites may not be unified. Our taste buds may not be unified. But when we come to the Lord's table, church, I'm telling you, if you have come to faith in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, your hearts are unified with other believers all over creation. When we come to the table, the Lord unifies our hearts. And here's how Paul says it. Look how he says it. For as often, verse 26, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. For as often as you. What does that mean? It means as, as many times as. It means more than one time, sure. It means whenever. Whenever you come together to partake of the Lord's Supper. Whenever that happens. Again, we're not given a prescribed amount of time or a prescribed time that we're to come together. We're not, we're not given that here. The Scripture doesn't tell us, this is how many times you need to do this in a month, in a year. It doesn't tell us that. The Lord just simply says, you need to do it more than one time, as often as you do it. Baptism is once, but the Lord's Supper is continuous. That's why we've been doing it for 2,000 years, continue to do it. We do this in remembrance of Him. It's an order from the Lord Jesus. It's an order from King Jesus. It's an or, that's why we call it an ordinance of the church, because Jesus orders us to do it. Paul even said that in verse 23. He said, for what I received from the Lord, I have also delivered to you. And then he gives them instructions on the Lord's Supper. So this is not something Paul has thought up in his mind. This is an order, an ordinance from King Jesus 
ordered to New Testament church for you and I to partake in the Lord's Supper. To do this in remembrance of Jesus. That's why we do it. Our St. Louis mission team saw God move. It was incredible. Uh, two weeks ago, our part of our church worshipped with Heights Community Church. Now, Heights Community Church is two churches that have merged together. Uh, Heights Church and Collinsville Community Church have come together for Heights Community Church. Pastor Corey, Pastor David, they've merged together, these church planners that we support in St. Louis. And so we worshiped with them a couple of weeks ago, and they observed the Lord's Supper. They were partaking of the Lord's Supper. And that's not unusual because they do it every Sunday. Every single Sunday, they participate or partake in the Lord's Supper. And they were using these little cups this past week. They do it a little different, but, but, but they still observe it. After the reading of the Word, after the preaching, after the singing, after the worship, at the time of invitation, when they invite unbelievers to be saved, when they invite people to respond to the word, at the same time, they invite believers to partake of the Lord's Supper. And it kind of went like this. Okay, believers, help yourself. Partake of the Lord's Supper. So I'm looking around for some instructions from somebody, and I, I see a couple of people there. They just tear this off, eat the, eat the bread real quick, and just drink it real fast. It's like they were training for the Olympics. Like 1.1 second, they were done. Like an Olympic sport or something. Very quick. And that was it. I mean, just ran through it real quick. And after that service, Tanya said to me, she said, man, I, that was different. She said, that's different. She said, I, I like it. It's a little too fast, but, but I like it. I liked it because, Sam, when, when, when you administer the Lord's Supper, you take too long. <laughs> so, see, in Scripture, we're not, we're not prescribed on, hey, every church is autonomous. We get to decide how often we want to do the Lord's Supper and how long or short it will take. <laughs> Right? I mean, we're not prescribed, here's the way you have to do it. The way you do it is, do this in remembrance of Jesus. How, whatever that looks like for whatever church, just do this in remembrance of Him. So when we come together, whether we're in St. Louis or Chattanooga, wherever we are, when we come together, our hearts are being unified. And he says it like this, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, the bread representing the body of Christ. Peter tells us he himself, Jesus, very intentional, he himself bore our sin. Substitutionary. He didn't bear his own sin. He bore our sin in his body, very personal. God the Father didn't die on the cross. God the Holy Spirit didn't die on the cross. God the Son died on the cross, very personal. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, very severe, brutal, suffering. In his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Very salvific. That by his wounds you've been healed. Very curative. Man, his body given up for us. It says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. That cup represents the blood of Christ. That without the forgiveness, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So Jesus shed his blood to wash our sins away. To forgive us. And this is what we do when we come to the table. It unifies our hearts. That we are one in Christ. No longer male, female, black, white, Jew, Greek. We're one in Christ. No better place we see that than when we come to the Lord's table. But there's two dangers as we come to the table today. Two dangers. 
two extremes. One extreme is the folks that say they come to the table, and as one pastor says, their memory's too good. <laughs> when you come to the table, your memory's too good. You're remembering every sin you've ever committed in your entire life. And you say, well, I'm not worthy to partake of the supper because all this is in my past. I can't partake, and, and you don't. You, you don't partake because you, you think your sin is too great. That's one extreme. The other extreme is those folks that come just presumptuously come to the table and their memory is not good enough. <laughs> they don't think they've sinned at all. And they are worthy to come to the table. Both of those extremes are in error because both of them are thinking about self. One is saying, I'm not worthy. The other one's saying, I am worthy. Both are incorrect, wrong, and in error. When we come to the table, we don't come to the table because we're worthy, because none of us are worthy. We come to the table because Jesus is worthy. He is worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the one who can open the scroll. John was in distress in the book of Revelation because there was none found worthy to unroll the scroll. And then he saw the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the choir began to sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Yes, Lord, he is worthy. And when we come to the table, our hearts are unified. There was a chaplain in World War II, name of uh, Chaplain Maltby. He arrived on the island of, uh, an island in Indonesia, and he built himself a little chapel, had a parachute for a roof and a dirt floor, and made a little platform and some pews and an altar and wanted to minister to the troops. He wanted to administer the Lord's Supper with the troops, but they didn't have any cups. They didn't have anything to use uh, to observe the Lord's Supper. So he took some 50 caliber shells and he began to to, to take the firing cap off and to get the gunpowder out. And he began to weld those shells and mold and shape those shells. And it took about two hours to do one of them, and he did 80 of them. And he made little communion cups out of those 50 caliber shells. And he administered the Lord's Supper. And then a little time later, he sailed to Japan, met up with a Japanese pastor still during the war. And he and that pastor held a service with, his, with that Japanese pastor's church with the same communion cups, those shells. And, and here's what that Japanese pastor, who was moved by that, here's what he said. He said, Chaplain Maltby really understands the significance of instruments of death becoming a symbol of eternal life. That's what the cross is all about. That's why we have the blood and the body. That instrument of death, that Roman cross was brutal and severe. And yet God took that gruesome instrument of death and he brought forth eternal life for whosoever shall believe. So whether we're in Japan or Chattanooga or St. Louis or we're enemies on the battlefield, Believers in Christ are unified at the table, at the cross. Our hearts are unified. And that reminds us that even the people we don't like, even the people that we think, I just can't even, the Lord loves them. He loves those that we don't like. And we see that because we're unified at the table. Here's a second clue, clue number two. 
the Lord as our hero is clarified when we come to the table. When we come to the table, our hero is clarified for us. No more discussion about who our hero is when we come to the table. I don't know about you, but I like watching the Olympics. Anybody like watching the Olympics? Just me? Anybody else? Okay. I'm convinced, I really feel like, if opening a Chick-fil-A sauce packet cleanly without ripping it or tearing the top, you know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like cleanly all the way through? If that was an Olympic sport, I would medal. I'd get the gold, baby. I love the Olympics. You know, this gymnast, uh, Biles, the gymnast who is withdrawn from much of the competition, you know she's a human being, right? You know she's human. Now, she's a hero to many, I'm sure, but what a reminder as we watch these incredible athletes just do incredible things that they're still human (laughs) and Paul points us here takes our eyes off of each other and says hey when we come to the table we're going to proclaim the Lord's death not complain about death not proclaim somebody else's death but we're going to proclaim the Lord's death Yahweh the personal name of God Jesus in the flesh We are going to proclaim the Lord's death, the person of Jesus. God revealed himself in the person of Christ, and we proclaim his death every time we come to the table. And it's clarified who our hero really is. Paul says it like this, you proclaim, you tell with conviction is what that means. It means to make known publicly. It means to make known publicly with implication of broad dissemination. Like you're telling it, knowing it's going to spread, knowing people are going to believe, knowing people are going to be saved. We tell it with that kind of confidence. We have that confidence in publicly proclaiming the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. See, your faith may be personal. I pray your faith is personal. But your your faith is never private. It's a public faith. God calls us publicly. Not privately. That's why the two ordinances are done out in the open. Baptism is very public, isn't it? Of course it is. Why? Because we're professing that Jesus is Lord. The Lord's Supper is very public. Why? Because we're proclaiming Jesus is Lord. This is who we are. We are to proclaim and to tell and to announce. The Great Commission will never happen unless gospel conversations are happening. And I'm so thankful that our team in St. Louis, they had about 48 gospel conversations, had over 11, I think 11 people trusted Christ as their Savior. Praise God, and we baptized more than that. Baptize them in a skating rink. They're planning a church in a skating rink in St. Louis. Very exciting. Unconventional, sure, but very exciting to see God move. And that's what we're called to do is to proclaim and to make known what God is doing and who God is. Yet I just read Lifeway reported that 71% of the unchurched, 71%, 71% of the unchurched say that they've never had a Christian tell them how they can become a Christian. That's unacceptable. I mean, when we come together to do the Lord's Supper, we're coming together for one purpose, to proclaim 
the Lord's death, His burial, His resurrection, and His soon coming. Randy Davis said it like this, I'm not worried about the day when we can't share the gospel. I'm worried about today when we won't share the gospel. We have the freedom to do it and we won't do it. And all we can talk about is our liberties and freedom taken away. What does it matter? We're not using them anyway. If we were using them, we'd be telling people about Jesus. My heavens, 89% of unchurched people say that if their friend was passionate about their faith, they would be more than happy to listen. More than happy to hear them out. What are we proclaiming? Here we're told to proclaim the Lord's death. Isn't that strange? The world looks at that and says, what are y'all doing? Your hero is dead? Heroes don't die. Yeah, our hero died, but he ain't dead. (laughs) He was raised from the dead. He's ascended to the Father. One day he's coming again. So death is, I'm, I'm telling you, death is so annoying, isn't it? It's just there all the time. Constantly we're reminded, bombarded with death, death, death. Jesus, by the way, is is known as the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? Was Jesus the first one to be born? No. Was Jesus the first one to be born and to die? No. Was Jesus the first one to be born to die and to be raised to life? No. Was Jesus the first one to be born, to die, to be raised to life, and to never die again? Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Yes, yes. Firstborn from the dead. Meanwhile, death won't leave us alone. Man, it's annoying, isn't it? Really good friend of mine, really good friend of his, died recently. Young man, younger than me, just dropped dead at his mailbox, dropped dead. Death is no respecter of persons. One of ZZ Top, Dusty Hill was ZZ Top, died this week. Since I've been pastoring here at Red Bank, since I've been your pastor in nine years, we average anywhere between two and three death notices via email every week. Now, that's not all church members. That may be people connected, family members, extended family, friends, that kind of thing. But it just bombards our inbox for nine years. Death, 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 death. Death. I mean, it just won't leave us alone. You know, more Japanese people died of suicide in October of 2020 than died from COVID from January through September of 2020. Death, death. The IMB put that out. The International Mission Board said, pray for the Japanese people. Death, death, death. Heights Community Church. Uh, Again, we were there a couple of weeks ago serving them and a lot of things happened that week, and I asked David, I said, man, does everything happen? I mean, I mean, God's really moving here. Does this happen all the time? He said, no, I assure you, this, things like this don't happen all the time. But they have run out of space. They need a bigger space to worship. They're in two services, about to go to three because they're just out of space. And they found a piece of property they really liked. They made an offer, and they just missed it because an investor snuck in and bought it and raised the price several hundred thousand dollars, over a million dollars. They were still planning and praying to get it. And while we were there at the skating camp, while we were in the skating rink, Mike walks in. Now, I don't know Mike. They didn't know Mike. Mike is a friend of a church member, the childhood friend that grew up in in the church. And you couldn't miss Mike when he came in. He was tattooed and just tattooed all over, head, arms, neck, just tatted up. And Mike walks in. 
about 40 years old or so, and he, he, he walks over to Pastor David and begins to have a conversation with David. And he said, David, I heard about y'all's situation. You need more space, and you're out of space, and you have this piece of property you want. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go buy that piece of property from the investor, and I'm going to give it to you. Well, David nearly fainted. And in tears of just flowing down his face, he just couldn't believe what he was hearing. He didn't know what to make of it. And Mike continued to share with him, and Mike said, well, you know, Mike, he, he was a former professional dirt bike racer, business owner. He's a millionaire. He's worth about $25, 27000000 million, apparently. Mike is not a believer. He doesn't know Jesus. And this is what he said to Dave. He said, you know, I've been diagnosed with terminal cancer. I'm stage four cancer. In his 40s, he says, I don't, doctors tell me I'm going to die sooner than later. I don't have much time, and I just want to make sure I do something good before I go. David said, man, I'd, I'd be a bad pastor if I didn't tell you that you can do all the good in the world, and it won't put you in the right relationship with God. And he began to share grace with him, began to share the gospel with him. So pray for Mike. I know some of our life groups are praying for Mike. Pray for Mike. Mike does not know Jesus. We're going to pray that he comes to know Christ. We're going to pray that the church gets that property. We're going to pray that Mike becomes a follower of Jesus. We're going to pray that way. But even Mike's story reminds us that death is always there, isn't it? Always. Well, I've got some good news. You know that death has a lifespan? You know that? Do you know that death is not going to live forever? Do you know that? Do you know that death has not always existed? And it's not going to always exist. In fact, death was born. I don't know if you know this or not, but death was born in Genesis chapter 3. When Jesus told Adam and Eve, he said, look, don't eat of any, you can eat of any tree in the garden, just don't eat of that tree, the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, the serpent came along and said, did God really say you'll surely die? Well, I assure you, Adam and Eve surely died <laughs> once they ate of that tree. And so death was born in Genesis 3. But then we get to Matthew 28. And you can read all through the Old Testament. Moses died. Joseph died. King David died. And you can read about death after death after death. Then we get to Matthew 28. <laughs> and in Matthew 28, we begin to understand that death, yeah, it's, it was born, but death is also beaten. With these words, Matthew 28, he is not here. He is risen. And we knew death was done. And then you get to Revelation 21, and death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. Like dead forever. And death doesn't live forever. Death is done. I'm so tired of people saying the gospel is being threatened. Church, the gospel can't be threatened. The very nature of gospel means we have won. It is finished. It is done. There is no rival, no equal. Now, the proclamation of the gospel can be threatened to some degree, or those that proclaim the gospel can be threatened, but the gospel itself has no threat. It is a, it's an announcement of victory. Every time we proclaim the Lord's death, we are announcing victory. That's what we're doing. When we, do the Lord, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're announcing victory. 
Here's how Jesus said it. Look at verse 25 real quick. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. 25. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant. Somebody say new. New covenant. What does that insinuate? Insinuates there was an old covenant, right? <laughs> if there's a new one, there must have been an old one. What was the old one? It was the law of Moses. God gave Moses instructions to the people of God on that first Passover to take that lamb and sacrifice that Passover lamb and take the blood, the blood, and put it over the doorpost. So when the death angel passed over the land, when the death angel came to a house and saw the blood, he would pass over and not take the firstborn and not kill the firstborn. That was the old covenant. Jesus says it this way. That his blood is the new covenant. I heard a pastor explain it this way, and I hope this helps. So just hear me out. I'm almost quoting verbatim what this pastor had to say. I want you to picture two Jewish men. And picture them the day before the very first Passover. Okay? And they're having a conversation. These two Jewish men, they're having a conversation. And one of them says to the other, Aren't you a little nervous about tonight? You know, with everything that's going to happen. And the other Jewish man looks at him and says, Well, God told us, what was going to happen? God's told us what to do through his servant Moses. I mean, haven't you taken the blood of the Passover lamb and put it over your doorpost? Haven't you applied the blood to your home? Haven't you taken the blood of the Passover and put it over your doorpost and applied it to your home? Haven't you taken the Passover lamb and, and, and prepared it for, to have a meal tonight with your family? Haven't you done all that? guy says, well, yeah, yeah. The other guy says, look, I've done all that. I'm not stupid. I've done that. I've applied the blood. The blood has been applied to my home and to my family. I've done that. But still, you have to admit, it's a bit kind of scary, isn't it? I mean, with everything that's been happening, with the, blood, with the, with the river turning to blood and the, and the frogs and the flies and the gnats and all these plagues, I mean, it's been terrifying. It's been awful. And tonight, this death angel is passing over and going to kill the firstborn. And that's okay with you because you have three sons, but I only have one. And I love my son. And yes, I've applied the blood and I put the blood there. And I know what God says, but it's still scary. I just want this night to be over with. And the other Jewish guy says, bring it on. Man, I trust in the promises of God. Bring it on. Well, that night, the death angel passed over both the house of the man with a very confident faith and the house with the man with weaker faith. Of those two Jewish men, which of their sons died? Which of their sons that night died? Neither one of them. 
Why is that? The death angel didn't pass over their homes based upon the confidence of the faith they exercised. The death angel passed over their home solely based upon the blood. Solely based upon the blood. So when we come to this table, we are reminded that we have a hero. One who is Savior and Lord. And I know we look around this world today and and, and hope is hard to see. It's hard to see. And our confidence can get... Our faith can, can get weaker and we, we can be those of, of little faith and we look around and so Paul says, hey, this is why this is so, so important to gather at the table and get your eyes up and focus on your hero who has overcome it all. His name is Jesus. Here's the last clue before we partake of the Lord's Supper. The Lord as our hope is personified at the table. Our hope becomes a person. You know, when Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, here's what happened. The hope, the confident expectation that that we read about in Hebrews 11, all those in the hall of faith that look forward to the coming Messiah, that hope that they had. When Jesus put on flesh, hope was personified. Hope became a person. Jesus. And when we come to the table, we proclaim the Lord's death, but look what we do. We proclaim the Lord's death, the last part of verse 26, until he comes. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So our hope is personified in Christ. You know, here's what we're doing. We're making what is invisible. Invisible. Think about that word invisible. How do you spell the word invisible? I think it's I-N-V-I-S-I-B-L-E, right? Why don't we spell it this way? That's a terrible dad joke, isn't it? It's terrible, 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 but it's invisible. You can't see. I've never seen Jesus physically. I've never seen him visibly. And so when we come to this table, here's what we're doing. We are taking what is invisible and we cannot see, and we are making it visible through a piece of bread and some juice. We're making what is invisible visible. And we're to do it until he comes. What does that mean? That when he comes, we won't do it anymore. Why is that? Well, when Jesus comes, the Bible says that every eye will see him. He will be visible. So there'll be no need to continue to do the Lord's Supper. Because what we're doing is making what is invisible visible. And until he comes, the point in time when he comes, every eye will see him. He will be visible. So as we gather together, our hearts are unified. Our hero is clarified. Our hope is personified as we gather at the table. And you know this, and I know this too. Normal, I love what it says here, until he comes. You know that normal is never coming back. You know that, right? It's never coming back. 
Making everything go back to normal is never coming back. But the one who's making all things new, he's coming back. I saw a list yesterday of all the different variants that are coming. I mean, they're coming out like new iPhones. Every other month, there's going to be another variant. I'm telling you, church, it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. There'll be Delta and Lambda and Chi and Psi and all these different variants. Lambda and Delta, and they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. And life before Delta and Lambda is never coming back. But praise God, the Alpha and the Omega, He is coming back. We know this. He promises it. Amen. And so when we come to the table, here's what we're doing. We're not putting our faith in our best day on this earth. Don't put your faith in your best day. Put your faith in the day that the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. And that's what we do when we partake of the Lord's Supper. That's what we're doing. That Jesus had a body like yours and mine. I mean, that, that should blow your mind. That should blow your mind that God the Creator put on this flesh and then took it and hung on a tree so you and I could live. That's, that's almost unfathomable to think, but he, he did it. And he calls us every time we come to this table to do this in remembrance of him. Look, it's going to get a lot worse. But I'm telling you, the best is yet to come. It's yet to come. Jesus is coming. So as we come to the table, what we're doing...